Hi listeners! Before we get started, I have two quick announcements. The National Science Foundation, together with the Arizona State University, offering a three-week intensive methods training for PhD students. The NSF Cultural Anthropology Methods Program will be held virtually from June 26 to July 7th and will offer the opportunity to advance your knowledge of cultural anthropology methods and connect with people in the field. Apply by March 15th at methodsforall.org. That's M-E-T-H-O-D-S for A-L-L dot org. The link will be included in the bio of this episode. And we also would like to draw your attention to a special issue of Evolution, Medicine and Public Health that is solicitating data-driven or theoretical research papers from scholars who use bioarchaeology, paleopathology and evolutionary theory to answer questions about medical issues affecting humans. If you or your lab are conducting such research, please consider submitting your work to EMPH. Submissions will be considered for this virtual issue up until August 31st of 2021. See the link in this episode's bio. Hi listeners, Delaney here, producer of The Sausage of Science. We would love to know more about who listens to our podcast. If you can please take a minute to take our 10-item survey, you can find the link in the show notes. We look forward to learning more about you. to see you and I'm really glad that you're co-hosting although I may be excited is the wrong word given what today's interview and podcast is about but it does make me happy to see you it's so hard in pandemic times yeah I think today's still going to be exciting because we're honoring his memory but also his work and then everything that's going to do for future anthropologists and, and people who are still starting in the field so I think it's exciting yeah so I guess we should actually say who we are honoring today so today we are honoring Dr. Gary James who was a distinguished service professor of anthropology and director of the Institute for Primary and Preventative Healthcare at Binghamton University uh, and he passed away just this past October October 15th, and uh, his research bridged scientific and clinical approaches to blood pressure and stress, combining anthropological, biomedical, adaptive, and ecological approaches to the understanding of human behavior, health, and biology. And many of us in the HBA community uh, know and remember Gary for his quick smile, jokes, being the recipient of the France Boaz Award for Lifetime Achievement, and his willingness to speedily pass motions during annual HBA business meetings, which we all greatly appreciated. Uh, And we are going to have two of Gary's colleagues on today, Drs. Mike Little and Dan Brown, to discuss Gary's life and legacy. And Michael has already entered the waiting room, so I'm going to go ahead and admit him. Well, let me say good afternoon to Mike and good morning to Dan, because Dan is in Hawaii, and so he is several hours, five, I believe, behind all of us, except for Alex, four behind Alex, here in the Eastern and Central time zone. So thank you so much for being the early bird for us. So we start off every podcast in a very similar way, even if they are memorial episodes, and that's getting to learn a little bit more about each of you who we're actually Mm -hmm. interviewing. And so let's actually start with Mike, if we could, and tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into the field of anthropology. Now, in 25 words or less. uh... (laughs) The abstract version, sure. (laughs) (laughs) You can cut me off if I go on too long. Well, I, I started out as an undergraduate in geology, then took a big break to make some more money so I could get back to college. 
and then uh, went to the main campus at Penn State. And uh, after one more semester in geology, I met uh, Paul Baker in anthropology. He was a young biological anthropologist who has a very strong connection with all of us, including Dan and Gary and some others we'll mention. And he was so charismatic and the program seemed so interesting and I was already interested in evolution that I switched to uh, anthropology with an emphasis on biological anthropology. Penn State was the only school that I had ever applied to and I just stayed there through the PhD. It seemed the easiest thing to do. <laughs> Plus they were accepting of me and provided a lot of intellectual, moral and general support. So I finished Penn State with a PhD after having worked in Peru on the uh, high altitude Andean project that Baker had initiated and then moved to Ohio State for my first job. Stayed there for uh, three years, but encountered a schizoid paranoid chairman and decided <laughs> to leave Ohio State. Uh, went to Binghamton in 71 and then stayed there until I retired two years ago. But in the meanwhile, I had participated in a new project in East Africa on the uh, pastoral nomads, uh, the Turkana in Northwest Kenya, to close colleague uh, Neville Dyson Hudson, who just died in December at age 91. Uh, Neville and I were very close and, uh, and had common interests, although he was trained as a social anthropologist by Evans Pritchard in England, and I as a biological anthropologist. Nevertheless, we got along well. And then that project continued for a relatively long period of time and it was very rewarding and frustrating at the same time. Being a multidisciplinary project, multidisciplinary projects give you ulcers and all kinds of psychosomatic disorders, but uh, they're highly productive. But last, I tired of sleeping on the ground and intense. I started working on history of the profession and have been doing that most of the time. So mostly library research in recent years. I now think we need to do a study on the psychosocial stress brought on by multidisciplinary studies, <laughs> kind of a research in our own field of what we go through to get this kind of work done. It's a win-lose situation. Dan, how about you? Uh, if I can just jump in on the stress of multidisciplinary uh, research, I was once talking to Paul Baker, since Paul's name is going to appear, I think, several times in this podcast. I admitted to him that sometimes when I was working on projects, I, I felt like I was sort of faking it because there were so many areas that I didn't know as much as a specialist ought to. And I said, you know, so I feel like I'm sort of faking it. And Paul said, me too. <laughs> I think that is a wonderful sentiment that every single person within academia, if not all professions feel. So I, we definitely can sympathize with that. Yes, well, they ought to, anyhow. So anyhow, how I got in was uh, always through great teachers, I think. I had a terrific biology teacher in high school, so I went to college as a bio major. I was going to be a molecular biologist, and I had some really nice teachers in undergraduate school who introduced me to evolutionary biology, so I kind of dropped a lot of the molecular stuff, although it was always sort of near and dear. And then I met an anthropologist there named Jim Dietz, who was a quite well-known archaeologist. He was one of the people in the new archaeology. And I learned a bit about just scientific methodology, I guess, from him. And I also just became enchanted with anthropology. Then I went off to Cornell and Brooke Thomas, who was 
Paul Baker's student, <laughs> uh, was my mentor. And, and he convinced me that human biology was my calling. One of my uh, office mates was Bruce Winterhalder, who went off to study the Northern Cree in their ecology. He did a brilliant study there. And I got a postcard from him that said, thank God winter's coming. It'll kill off the black flies. <laughs> And then I looked at a globe and went, <laughs> Hawaii, I think I'm going to work in Hawaii. <laughs> and that was where Mike Hanna, or Joel M. Hanna, but everyone knows him as Mike, was teamed with Paul Baker on a Samoan study. So I went off to go study stress in Samoans, got off the plane and met Mike. And Mike said, if the Samoans see another Palangi after what we just did to them, they'll kill them. <laughs> <laughs> so oh, I said, Filipinos are my backup. <laughs> so I started doing stress studies on Filipino immigrants to Hawaii. And later on, I'll tell you that that's how I later connected with Gary. So how did both of you meet Gary and how did you start working with him? I actually met Gary at one of the AAPA meetings. It was before, I mean, Human Biology Council at the time. It wasn't the HBA. Um, used to have not a full meetings, but I met him at these meetings anyhow. I had heard that he had been doing stress studies in Samoa. So he came up and introduced himself because he had read my early studies and I learned about his studies. And we realized that we were just about the only ones doing this work. And many people had no clue what we were doing. So we were just kind of sitting back in a room and we were the urinary determinists, we decided. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, we became fast friends and we were um, roommates at these conferences for over 30 years, I'm sure. I met Gary somewhat later. Uh, Dan is uh, kind of a grand student of Paul Baker. <laughs> since Brooke was a student and uh, Dan is a Brooke student. And Gary was a student who was closer to Dan's cohort. I finished in, uh, in 68. And uh, Gary finished, I think, in 85, around that time. But Gary was also a student of Paul Baker's. But I did not meet Gary until somewhat later when we were doing a Zeitschrift, a volume for Paul Baker's retirement. What characterized the volume was that all of us who were Paul Baker's students contributed various things to this edited volume. And so I kind of met Gary indirectly when we were doing that volume. I guess it was back in... Uh, 1988 or 1989. And then I knew that Gary had moved to New York City and was working at uh, New York University. And, and then this becomes a longer story, perhaps, than I want to tell. But uh, Ralph Garuto came to Binghamton University after retiring from the National Institutes of Health at about the same time that he was elected the National Academy of Sciences. And Ralph had the idea, it was Ralph's initiative, of trying to get Gary to come to Binghamton University because Gary had been working with nurses at New York University doing his blood pressure surveys. And the nursing program at Binghamton University was badly in need of some good scholarship. And Gary certainly had that. And so uh, Ralph kind of got things moving and Gary was hired then in the nursing department and then the next step was Gary's joint appointment with anthropology and then the final step was Gary moving to anthropology uh, directly 
And this all occurred in the late 1990s into the 21st century. So Gary was a member of the department for a number of years, but was preceded by having a joint appointment with nursing. And he trained a number of students in nursing, producing PhDs and master's theses, far more than he did in anthropology because he came into anthropology full-time a little bit later. So I'm going to skip the second question we had planned for a moment, only because you brought it up, Mike, talking about his blood pressure work among nurses. So as the question says, he did some extensive work on blood pressure and developing the white coat hypertension concept and how blood pressure doesn't really have a set point where, you know, everybody wants that key, you know, 120 over 80 kind of idea. Could both of you, I'm not sure who might want to take this, expound a bit on this line of inquiry and what we learned from it. I guess I'll jump in and start out. It was a natural extension of his stress research. When he got to Cornell, that's where the people were working with the, at the time, very new idea of ambulatory blood pressures. And he worked with a group of people who discovered white coat hypertension. But it fit very well with also his notion of what human biology is about and his later interest in, in what's now called allostasis. Blood pressure to him was an allostatic process. It was not a blood pressure. You didn't have a blood pressure. Your blood pressure changed throughout the day based on the circumstances that you confronted. So it was, in a sense, in a, what I would call an adaptive kind of a thing. And later, we would say, call it an allostatic process that was occurring. He was very adamant about it. And I remember he used to say, you know, if your blood pressure didn't change while you're going up a flight of stairs, you wouldn't make it to the top. <laughs> he had a, a little impatience with some of the, what he saw as the clinical ideas that you had to have a set point. And that, you know, if you, your blood pressure was 140 over 90, you were hypertensive. It was, if it was 139 over 89, you were not. And he said, and you don't have a blood pressure anyhow. And people who are nervous when they go into the doctor, which is white coat hypertension, would have elevated blood pressure. You put them on pills. All they needed to do was stay away from doctors. <laughs> so I think he integrated very well his interest in stress human biology, human biological variation, and the more clinical stuff that he was doing with blood pressures. Oh, one correction. I said New York University. I meant New York. It's Harvard. Cornell. Cornell. At Cornell Weill uh, yes. in New York City. Gary's interest in allostasis, I think, arose probably in the late 80s when this concept became right. known and, and written about at that time. And so and it's, it's still a little bit of a controversial topic in that you know, this arose out of homeostasis, which is the maintenance of a steady state. But it's really a, a sometimes when homeostasis as a concept was criticized, it was criticized as being too static. And so then people started talking about dynamic homeostasis. And if you if you say dynamic, dynamic homeostasis, then you're talking about allostasis. <laughs> and so it's not only blood pressure, but probably other systems. I was thinking about this in the context of temperature regulation, and some of us here are interested in temperature regulation. I'm still interested in it, but I don't do anything with it. There's close to a set point in temperature regulation at rest, but uh, temperature regulation and the set point changes with changing activity, 
I remember I had had a summer fellowship at NASA one time, and one of the uh, one of my co-fellows uh, in in Houston used to be a, a distance runner. He would go out and run several miles at noon in Houston, which is one of the craziest things that I can imagine anybody doing in the summertime. And he came back one time, and he had he was really in bad shape. And, and we checked his body temperature, and it was 106. <laughs> and so we immediately uh, started. That's not okay. That's dangerous. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I mean, that's what happens when you're stupid enough to run in the sun in Houston in the middle of the summer. Was he okay? Yeah, we cooled him down. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and he decided to cut back on his noon running and try to do it early in the evening. I just say, just cut back or eliminate the new running. <laughs> Cutting back doesn't seem like it'll solve the problem. <laughs> that was his choice. So that even temperature regulation is a bit, it's not quite as allostatic, if I can use that term, as blood pressure, but it still it seems to me that it fits within that allostatic model. One of the reasons I am hosting uh, the podcast today instead of Chris, who usually co-hosts with Kara, is because Gary was my advisor at Binghamton. And his, <laughs> his work has impacted my work now and still is every day, right? Even though I study from a regulation in humans, what he has brought to the table about allostatic variation and changes in how the organism works goes far beyond just what we perceive as stress. I remember one of the first classes when I took Gary's class on stress was that stress is so variable that there's so many different stresses because when people usually say stress, they mean, oh, anxiety or stresses from too much work. But there are different kinds of stresses, right? There's temperature stress or activity stress. Even though I don't study blood pressure anymore, I worked a little bit with Gary's sample from New York City that you mentioned earlier. I, I did some of the data analysis on that when I was at Binghamton. I don't work on that anymore, but what I have learned with him carried into my research now. So one thing we haven't really mentioned is what exactly were the questions that he was asking and how was he approaching it? Like you said, he was very passionate and very clear, but he wanted. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Unfortunately, mm. it would be best if Gary were talking about that, <laughs> one of us. But his passion and his primary interest was in stress, that blood pressure was the mechanism that he explored most. And he explored it in a variety of ways. He had that terrific sample from uh, from New York City, it, it was unbelievable how much he could get out of that sample in a variety of different kinds of studies that he conducted. And there was always data available from that sample for his students. I guess, Alex, you probably worked with some of those data. Some of the skills that Gary had that enabled him to so carefully and deeply kind of excavate the data that he had were his statistical skills. And his statistical skills were quite remarkable and being able to apply them in computer use. I once talked to him about that. I was always hesitant to ask him for statistical help because everybody else did it. Having these skills gave him a lot of co-authorship, but it also gave him a lot of work. When he had an idea, a further idea about blood pressure variation, he had all of his data on the computer and could manipulate it in a whole variety of ways that were easy for him. He could look at very subtle kinds of differences in blood pressure variation 
He was particularly interested since the sample were, I think, were largely women nurses. He was very much interested in variation in blood pressure over the diurnal cycle, the daily cycle, and also associated uh, with the menstrual cycle uh, in women, and, uh, and what kinds of changes were related to normal behavior so that you could first understand the normal behavior before you could then begin look at pathology or abnormal behavior, although he was more directed in his studies to normal behavior. I once asked him how many statistics courses he had. He said he had eight graduate courses in statistics. I had a year of statistics, and I, I like to remark it never took. Uh, and uh, also because he taught the statistics course for graduate students and was able to learn when new procedures would come out, what was the Bayesian? Bayesian statistics was really hot. I guess it's still hot. I haven't the foggiest idea what it is, but people were really into Bayesian statistics. And Gary, I asked him about it one time and he explained it to me and I, it seemed quite sensible. But he did help me with one paper that I was doing in which he criticized on the type of statistics that I used and he helped me out with that. I could imagine having those skills and then everyone needs assistance in statistics unless they're quite sophisticated. And so I kind of likened him to Franz Boas, who was a supreme statistician in an earlier era. And this was a very valuable skill. I remember we were searching, I was searching for something on the computer and I had exhausted all of the possibilities. And I went to the Gary and he was able to find what I was looking for. So he had careful manipulative skills. He was a very bright individual who was able to utilize these skills effectively. There are so many things there. One, we all could use more statistics and more statistical training <laughs> as I had a semester of stats in grad school and I feel woefully unqualified every time I run stats. But this leads well, I think, into another thing about Gary and that he was very committed to service and one could even say his willingness to help other folks with their statistical analyses and, and working up how to actually approach these questions in a rigorous way is a form of service as well. He, he always seemed to me like someone quick to help and happy to help. And so I'm wondering maybe Dan, if you wouldn't mind talking a bit about his service to our field and his service to the Human Biology Association, maybe in particular. Yeah, sure. Yeah, he was amazing. I don't know if we'd have a Human Biology Association now if it wasn't for Gary's work when he was secretary treasurer was at a time when the association was economically destitute, let's say. And with what little funds we had, we had hired a group to kind of do the books. And Gary sat down and figured out that they weren't doing it properly and fired them <laughs> and did it all himself while doing all this other stuff we hear about. That was like a full-time job that he had for the four years? What, what, I don't know what your sentence is at the time as secretary treasurer. but Your it was, sentence. It was I like term. how that's the phrase. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I'll tell you, I think he really loved the HBA. And I think it, it came out of his work at Cornell Medical College, Cornell Weill, which he saw the human biology group as just being very collaborative there's certainly some competitiveness, but it's subtle and it isn't backstabbing. But at Cornell Medical Group, 
probably like many medical schools, the competition is fierce. It's, it's nature red in tooth and claw. And the contrast of that and his experience there, which was he loved the research there. He loved his research group, but the culture there he detested. And human biology was sort of his way of getting away. It was his almost like a vacation for him to work with people he saw as good people as well as good scientists. This will give a little bit of his personality because if, if he wasn't so good in science, you know, if that didn't work out, he would have been great in stand-up comedy. He, he was a hysterical guy. Even when he was really down at Cornell, I remember he used to tell me he, what, he, what he couldn't stand was arrogance. And if you mix that with mediocrity, then he hated, he just hated it. And medical schools seem to encourage arrogance. <laughs> he would sit there, he said, in this little desk, actually it was more like a table in the lab that they gave him at Cornell. And he'd see these physicians walk by who were just arrogant, but terrible researchers who would always go to him for help, but then would scoff at him and sort of say, well, yes, but we're not gonna put you on the paper or whatever it was. And he said he'd, he'd watch them go down the hall and he'd, he'd say, he'd, he'd do this. He'd, he'd walk down the hall and they'd go, ass, elbow, ass, elbow. <laughs> because he was sure that otherwise they wouldn't know their ass from their elbow. <laughs> uh, yeah, quick with the jokes. I have a Ralph story, a Ralph Garuto story. We were sitting at the human biology meetings and Ralph came up to us and said, the American Dermatoglyphics Association needs members. You two are going to sign up as members. <laughs> so we dutifully signed up as members and we sat in the back of their meeting that they would have at the human biology association meetings. And I at least had had, you know, like one class in grad school on dermatoglyphics. And I used to teach, a, you know, simple dermatoglyphics in my lab class. But Gary had no clue. So he would sit in the back and look at, stare at his fingers when people were giving their papers. <laughs> <laughs> Within two years, he was the editor of the American Dermatoglyphics newsletter. <laughs> That's insane. He was the editor. He must have learned a lot staring at his own fingers. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't always understand what it was, but he put his heart and soul into everything he did. He was an amazing guy. Your comment about his gregariousness and jovialness also comes across to students very well. He was oh, always very approachable. It was so easy to talk to him and ask him questions, like statistics questions. That's why you said earlier, that's why everybody went to him. But also as a student, I tend to be not shy. So I, I just tend to waltz into faculty's offices and ask questions. And some people are less happy about this, but Gary was always very welcoming and yeah. very happy to give me advice, answer any questions I might have. And he was a wonderful mentor. And I, being at Binghamton was, I had never taken anthropology before. So meeting both Gary and Mike there really helped my career in anthropology take off. Uh, so I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. But I'm also only one individual who's had an amazing experience working with Gary. And I know that many other people have had that too. But I was wondering, 
If you could tell me a little bit about Gary as a mentor, he had so many students over the years, and maybe you could elaborate a little bit about who he was as a mentor and what he was like. One of the things about Gary that characterized his personality was he was both cheerful and lighthearted, but at the same time very serious about mm -hmm. his, his work. Another characteristic was that he was very smart and could do things quickly. As someone who does things slowly, I can appreciate that. And you can spend more time enjoying yourself, I think, and being lighthearted if when you sit down to get something done, you can get it done quickly. These characteristics that Gary had, I think, made him a very popular teacher and also made him appear warm-hearted and helpful to students. I don't know if you agree with me, uh, Alex, but... Absolutely, yeah. At the same time, he trained several dozen nursing students. You have to be training students to know how much is involved in seeing them through to a master's or a PhD in terms of how many times you need to read documents and, and how many meetings that you need to have to provide assistance to help them find their way and help them to develop certain levels of independence. And Gary spent a lot of time doing that in his office. One of the things, as I've mentioned, he worked fast and could do things quickly, but he was in his office a lot too, so that he would arrive relatively early in the morning and sometimes be there after six o'clock in the evening. He lived at some distance from the university, so he'd he seldom came in at night, but he stayed long hours. So these were some of the attributes that made him really a triple threat. The service was partly associated with him not only being willing to do these tasks, not with students, but other kinds of administrative tasks, but also to find these tasks interesting and to be drawn into participating in a committee or even heading a committee because uh, some of the other people on the committee were interesting and, and it made these activities rewarding to him. So that basically he was a triple threat in terms of service, teaching, and publication. His publications numbered well over 200 papers. But again, his ability to manipulate things on the computer and to deal with statistics enabled him to reach that level of publication more easily than others might have which then freed him with more time that he could devote to other kinds of services, which he obviously enjoyed, and then to work with students. So preparing lectures where uh, it could be done quickly. On the other hand, his personality made lectures interesting because he joked a lot. I remember he had a gadget one time that his wife Kathy gave to him. It was a little plastic device that had obviously tapes or some recordings in them, and one of the recordings would be a, a drum roll and a cymbal, like that. And another one would be, yeah, the whole crowd applauding. And he took that to class, and his, uh, his undergraduate class. And when he would make a statement, he'd say, well, what do you think of that? And then he would press one of the buttons, and there'd be this enormous amount of applause. Uh, or, uh, or a drum roll and a cymbal. Uh, and, uh, and he did that, uh, did that frequently. His office was filled with, uh, he was very fond of the Teletubbies. And, he, and his wife, Kathy, I think, had given him uh, some Teletubby dolls. And he 
unabashedly had them on one of his bookcases. And I mean, we all have objects like that in our offices. But Gary, Gary wasn't afraid of what people would think by having some of these things. He enjoyed them, and it, it reflected his lightheartedness and personality. I don't know if I've ever laughed this much during one of our <laughs> podcast interviews because of all these wonderful stories about his lightheartedness, but like you said, Mike, mixed in with his seriousness as a rigorous scientist and that he did all of this excellent work. There are two things that I wanted to mention one related to his service, he chaired the IRB for I don't know how many years. At that Binghamton. is a thankless well, job. <laughs> oh, that is just awful. <laughs> and he actually, because I'd go to him with stories about how the IRB was giving mm -hmm. me a hard time and stuff. And he made me want to move to Binghamton, winners be damned, because just to have him in charge of the IRB. And the second thing I want to mention is he actually had a joint appointment, at least for a while, in the engineering school hmm. because he was very interested in technology, particularly about blood pressure mm -hmm. and how to bet, make better ambulatory monitors. And he'd work with people there on that. I don't know whatever came of it, but hmm. just to give you an idea of just how broad he was able to take his Blood pressure and stress was his window on the world, but the world was very wide that he looked at through that window. Let's put it that way. But it seems like there was a depth as well that, you know, yeah. like like the fingerprinting that, you know, he's staring at his fingers, not understanding what in the world's going on and then becomes the editor of the journal. Like, that's amazing to me. But I mean, I think this is why this episode is really important, especially for people who are newer to our field. And probably recognize Gary from the lighthearted guy at the HBA meetings willing to pass motions along quickly <laughs> and maybe don't fully understand the depth of his research and how much he really did contribute to the field. And so I'm really glad that we were able to highlight both of those sides to really show how balanced he was. Like you had mentioned, he stood on all three legs of academia, the research, the teaching and the service. And that's a wonderful, wonderful tribute. But before we do kind of the final wrap up question, are there any other Gary stories, whether academic related or kind of personal friendship related, you want to make sure get out there? I can comment. I felt like I was a part of the Three Stooges when Dan was visiting and Dan, Gary and I would get together. We had some good times at national meetings also because I think you, Dan, and, uh, and Gary uh, like to go to zoos, and we would go to zoos occasionally. Right. Take a day off from the tedium of papers to uh, go to the zoo and just have a nice casual walk around. Gary and I thought it was just great when we finally dragged you away from the meetings the first time to go to a zoo. <laughs> then it became an annual thing with us. It was great. <laughs> I think that's something that people, especially when they're maybe newer to the field, like they feel like they have to attend every single session and they never actually get to enjoy the cities they are in. And I think that's a really important lesson that everyone should take some time out once we are able to physically go to conferences again, <laughs> to actually yeah. enjoy what those cities have to offer because it's really unique experiences every time. Yes, I agree because, so Dan, I met you in New Orleans at the HBA. Yes. Uh, Gary introduced us and you were about to go to the insect museum and Gary really That's wanted me right. to come along and I said I, I really couldn't because I didn't want to miss any of the talks and Gary told me for the rest of the next three days that I had really missed out on something that day uh, so yeah and he was right but at the time I 
I felt like I had to go to every single talk. So that is very true. Yeah, I recognized a lot of those insects from my kitchen. Where <laughs> 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 I'm in Hawaii, so. <laughs> We've shared a lot of great stories, but also talked a lot about his, his research. And to close off, if you had to sum up Gary as an academic and his work, what would you want a parting message to be for listeners? And maybe specifically for young listeners who might just be starting in the field and might not be as familiar with his work than more established people are. Wow, that's a tough one. Um, yeah, that's a tough question. <laughs> I'll take a stab. Dan, Dan and I can do a contrapuntal uh, interaction on this one. One of the things I keep thinking, to thine own self be true, and it shall follow the day the night, or something like that. Gary was always himself, and sometimes would say silly things uh, during faculty meetings, but most of the time, by being himself, made him a great academic and a great person. There's so much artificiality associated with participation in various professional things when you're young. You're always concerned about behaving appropriately. And the only time that you behave inappropriately is usually is at national meetings after you've had too much to drink. And, uh, and you, get, <laughs> you get to know people a little bit better under those circumstances. But there was another question that you had, and that was about what Gary's legacy is. I think one of the problems with science and all fields of endeavor today is that if it's not current, it seems not worthwhile. Every time I read a paper, I look for some of the history of the development of these ideas, and I seldom find it. If it doesn't begin with 2000, then it's like it's old hat. And so some very distinguished individuals who published pathbreaking materials never get cited anymore. So in terms of legacy, I'm, I'm a little bit cynical about anybody's legacy other than maybe Darwin and, uh, and a few others who made such substantial contributions that we can't forget them. One of the legacies is one's students, and I think your ideas tend to persist and your contributions tend to persist in the students that you've trained. And I think Gary trained a lot of students, not all of them in anthropology, but a lot of students in nursing and in other areas and had contact with a lot of young people. He was always asked at the Human Biology Association to participate in these roundtable or discussions with, uh, with students. I was in one of them and uh, Gary was in it also. And uh, students really liked his ideas. This is an important legacy. His blood pressure and stress studies are, of course, very important and built on this very complex topic. But I think the students are an equally important a part of his legacy. Dan, anything to contribute there? Yeah, well, you know, I'm not at Binghamton, so I, I haven't seen the work with his students there, but he very often at the meetings, I would watch him interact with students. And he very often became very important mentors to students who were not at Binghamton. For instance, Gillian Ice, who was a grad student at Ohio State, was doing a stress studies for her dissertation. And Doug Cruz, who was her mentor at Ohio State, was a friend of Gary's and introduced them. And Gary really did an awful lot of mentoring of her. And they've interacted and worked together ever since. So that's just one example that comes to mind. I'm sure there are many others. 
his groundbreaking work in stress and blood pressure, I think, is going to stand the test of time. Maybe I'm a little less cynical than Mike or dumber, <laughs> not seeing <laughs> what's really going on. But I really believe that his work will endure. And particularly in the last few years, well, actually all along, besides his research articles, he's done some beautiful review articles, which some on allostasis, some on blood pressure that are, I think, very meaningful. And I think they'll be cited for a long time. One of the articles that was published right before he died last year was the review article on allostasis and the American anthropologist. As with many submissions, the American anthropologist, it's they give you a hard time about getting things just the way they want them, the editors. So it took a long time to get the thing through, but it was, a, I think, a fitting a review article that reflected Gary's interests. Everybody should read it. Alex, be sure to link to said article in the show notes for next week. I want to thank you both so, so much for taking the time today. This was a really lovely tribute to Gary as a person, as an academic, and as a colleague. And I think a lot of people are going to learn far more about him than what they, you know, observed in the past decade at, say, HBA meetings. So again, thank you both so much for being on the show. And take care of yourselves. You You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks again.